Words, they get golly hard when they jumble. Jumping over hurdles, slowing birds like a turtle. Merkin fool, like Squirtle and Kate Gould. Cold blood is with this rhyme scheme, I'm a boss. This is That Got Me Thinking, and I'm Allie Newman. This week, I've been thinking about ease and dis-ease. I've been thinking about the distinction between cause and symptom, action, reaction. I've been thinking about our culture of fear and pretending, the incredible amount of stress and anxiety that exists today, and the ways in which it is undermining our sense of personal power. I've been thinking about the business of health and the medical-industrial complex. I've been thinking about the lure for a quick fix and how integrity in all aspects of ourselves creates balance and allows us to thrive individually and as a nation. My guest today is Dr. Andrew Weil. He is the author of 15 books, including Spontaneous Healing and Healthy Aging. He studied botany at Harvard College and graduated from Harvard Medical School. He's an advocate for integrative medicine on a multi-decade journey to educate the public as to the value of natural health and healing. Dr. Weil is Professor of Public Health, Clinical Professor of Medicine, and the Lovell Jones Professor of Integrative Rheumatology at the University of Arizona. He's a director of the Center for Integrative Medicine. He's also the editorial director of www.drweil.com, the leading resource for healthy living based on the philosophy of integrative medicine. His new book is said to be the go-to resource for anyone who is sick and tired of being sick and tired. And after reading his book, I think we're going to find out that that's a much bigger audience than we might like. Welcome, Dr. Weil, and thank you so much for joining us today on That Got Me Thinking. Thank you. Happy to be here. I want to start with what drew you to, to medicine and what drew you to botany. Well, botany first. Uh, I have a lifelong interest in plants. That's something I got from my mother that she got from her mother. It led me to be a botany major as an undergraduate. Um, medicine, gee, uh, I was always interested in science. I wanted to know more about human beings. I actually wasn't so sure I wanted to practice medicine, but I wanted a medical education. And with botany, was the interest in how things grew or in growing them and growing them the most efficient way? Or what, what, what sort of the aspects uh, of all botany? All of that. I was, I was fascinated by plants, both flowers, vegetables, growing food. And then um, uh, in college, I became very interested in medicinal plants, and that became a career interest of mine. And did you see the movie The Martian? <laughs> did you want to be the first botanist <laughs> on, on Mars? <laughs> of course. And so maybe that explains a little bit your, your comment on medicine about whether you weren't sure if you wanted to practice. What my next question is, was going to be was, what motivated you to travel the world and, and continue studying after you graduated from medical school? Uh, I felt, first of all, that I had not learned how to keep people well, and I've always felt that should be the main business of doctors, is to teach people how not to get sick in the first place. And also I felt that the methods that I was taught to treat disease uh, caused too much harm, particularly the use of powerful uh, uh, medications. And I wanted to see if there were other ways of doing it. So I began looking at you know, other healing practices and other cultures, different medical traditions. And gradually, I put my own system together, which I first called natural and preventive medicine and later came to call integrative medicine. So was medical school a frustrating experience on a daily basis? It was, uh, partly because all the things I was interested in, I, I really got little reinforcement for. I was interested in how the mind affected the body. I heard nothing about that. I learned nothing about nutrition. I learned nothing about the natural sources of the 
uh, of the drugs that I was being taught to use. So there was an awful lot of awful lot of material that I was interested in. I just didn't get exposed to in medical school. Did you think about quitting, or did you think, no, I'm going to change this industry? I kept my eyes on the goal. I had a feeling that a um, you know a medical degree would be very useful to me. I uh, thought a lot of what I learned in medical school was you know, was valuable, um, even though I didn't know what I w- wanted to do when I got out, uh, I thought that it would be helpful to me. And when you started traveling, did that validate your perspective on maybe the shortcomings of your medical education? Well, I saw an awful lot, an awful lot out there. Some of it seemed uh, not silly. Some seemed in conflict with what I learned in medical school. Uh, some really expanded my view. Actually, you know, I traveled for about three and a half years, a lot in in, uh, Latin America, some in Africa and Asia. And at the end of all that time, I settled in uh, Tucson, and it turned out the person that I had most to learn from had been here all the time. He was an elderly osteopathic physician in his 80s when I met him, uh, Robert Fulford. And I think he was the most effective healer I've ever met. He just used hands-on treatment, put a lot of emphasis on breathing, used no technology, and had a remarkable uh, record of, of curing very serious conditions. And was that about the time The Natural Mind, your, your book The Natural Mind, came out? That was actually after that. That I wrote uh, in 1972 before I started my travels. Um, so this was after that. So I want to talk a little bit about that before we get to your current book, about the natural drive to alter consciousness and your perspective on that. Well, I think that's universal, and uh, it's really at the root of why people take drugs, and I think our society does not allow for that or teach people how to have altered states of consciousness in healthy ways. Um, and I think that's really the, you know, the root of the drug problems that we've had. You had said every human society has used drugs except maybe for the Eskimos at that point. <laughs> and, and every society allows some and says they're good, as we do with coffee and, and uh, tobacco, which we make money from, and alcohol. And then we classify the, all the others as being evil, dangerous. But there's not really agreement from society to society as to which are the good ones and which aren't. And so I just, I thought that was so interesting, your perspective on our natural inclination to want to alter our consciousness, and that it's a a biological drive, and that all kinds of things we do in our lives are with that in mind, whether it be movement or sound or music and skiing, but that drugs are alluring because they can do it in a quick way, not much work and personal effort and mm-hmm. no, inv- no real investment of, of our energy. Right. The, the, the problems with, with if you rely on the drugs uh, over time, they begin to fail you, that you get less and less reward from them, and then you can become dependent on them or experience uh, you know, not good effects from them. In 71, you wrote, uh, 1971, you said, we have to say that now, because you know, it's <laughs> 2000, <laughs> right. that um, drugs are with us to stay. Fight them, and they will grow ever more destructive. Did we listen? You warned us. Did we nope. listen? Nope. Nope. In a later book I wrote uh, called From Chocolate to Morphine, the first line of that is, wars on drugs are always lost. And I think we have not learned that lesson. Your mind reader as well, because my next question was, uh, did you anticipate the failure of the war on drugs? And, and did you at that point realize that Yes, the I did. Approach... I mean, I, I think it, my experience has been, if you look throughout history, 
that whenever society has tried to eradicate a drug it doesn't like, it never works, and, and things get worse. Now, maybe we're beginning to see some you know, positive change now with uh, what's going on with cannabis as that's being accepted as a medical drug. I think you know, our relationship with that plant might change. So let's talk just a little bit about your book, Chocolate to Morphine, and your attempt to, to educate the public. And maybe what does make a drug education program successful? What are the elements that make it successful versus the effects of, of prohibition and just saying, just say no, and fear? I think honesty, honesty above all, that you have to... Uh, be honest about both the positive and negative effects of, of uh, drugs. And that means really being able you know, to admit that uh, tobacco in the form of cigarettes is the most addictive drug known, you know, right up there with crack cocaine and more so than heroin. It means admitting that alcohol causes much more medical and psychological harm than many of the illegal drugs. Um, you know, th- these are like realities that we have to face. That doesn't mean that the illegal drugs are totally safe or benign. They have their problems, but you know, drug education has to be honest. So what do you think has to be believed to craft an educational program that deals in honesty? I mean, do you think the problem is we don't think that people have the capability to assess facts and understand facts? Do you think that, you know, it's a being a, a paternalistic society where where have we developed where you know we are certainly today in in um, politics at least and and other aspects of, of our society are not dealing with facts and there even i heard something this morning about you know that he was blaming the academia but that you know it's a belief that there aren't really facts that that everything is is subjective well, you know, I think, as I said, when, it come, when you look at drugs, there are facts there. There are facts about alcohol, about tobacco, about caffeine, about marijuana, about heroin, about opioids. And I think there is truthful information. Maybe everything is subjective and, and uh, you know, there is bias there, but you can, I think you can sort of triangulate in ways to come to pretty close to objective truth. And I tried to do that in From Chocolate to Morphine. I mean, that's, that's an example of what I would call honest drug education. It does not say, it's not telling people to say no, it's educating, telling, giving you the information about all these substances, both the positives and negatives, so that people can make informed decisions about their use. Let's talk a little bit about the different cultures' perspectives on different drugs. And you mentioned that every culture accepts the use of certain drugs and encourages and even promotes and profits from them, and then will characterize the rest as bad and evil and the people who do them as evil and really demonize that drug. Um, and yet these are not the same drugs across the spectrum as to which ones are accepted and rejected. What drugs does America accept? Well, obviously, alcohol, tobacco, and caffeine, and medically used uh, stimulants and depressants. I mean, these are these are things that are part of our society. And in the case of of uh, alcohol and tobacco, we make money from them through taxes. And do you think that pretty quickly goes into the mentality of the culture and the community that people begin to believe that these are good and okay, and these are bad and and should be avoided? Well, you know, I said that uh, tobacco in the form of cigarettes is the most addictive substance known. When I was in medical school, this was in the late 1960s, 
I was taught that tobacco was not an addiction, that tobacco use it was a habit, a psychological habit. People were completely blind to what was right in front of their faces, that you know, when people become addicted to cigarettes, they have to shoot up every 20 minutes. The brain is demanding a hit of nicotine in that form, which is you know, delivered very quickly through the bloodstream. And we didn't see it, and we didn't do research on it. And that's an example of cultural bias because that uh, substance was so accepted and part of our society. Have you seen as well a corollary between prohibitions on a particular drug and its drug use and also its drug use maybe for people that otherwise may not have sought out that particular drug? I think no question. My parents lived through uh, alcohol prohibition, and you know their stories of the way they used um, uh, illegal hard alcohol during that time. It's just what you'd expect. You know, it was a forbidden substance, so it was attractive to young people, and they sought it out. I think uh, you know years ago when um, the Netherlands was the first con- country to decriminalize uh, marijuana. Um, they said their goal was to make marijuana boring. Uh, and over time, the use of it in their population declined. Um, you know, at, when it was not a forbidden thing, there was less use. And I think that's also what we've seen in, uh, in some of the states that have uh, legalized recreational marijuana here. There has not been the explosion of use that people were afraid of. You had a great example of that. I thought it was so illustrative. And um, chocolate to morphine about, and I may say it incorrectly, but the Cubeos and the coca The Cubeo Indians are, yeah, Amazonian Indians that I lived with, they use, uh, well, actually all, many South American Indians use coca leaf, the natural source of cocaine. Um, they chew it, it combines the functions of coffee and chewing gum for them. Um, they do not have, there's nothing like the problems that we see associated with cocaine use up here. It is a medicinal plant. They value it. It's uh, used for uh, specific purposes uh, in culturally approved ways. It does not cause problems. All right, so let's talk about your new book, Mind Over Meds. Know when drugs are necessary, when alternatives are better, and when to let your body heal on its own. You say, we have a problem. More people are taking more medications than ever before, and that's a cause for concern. No responsible physician today would reject medications as a method of treating disease and maintaining health, but it is one method only. So could you draw... You know, this is... Oh, go ahead. No, no, go ahead. No, I said this is all doctors are trained to do is to treat with medication. They aren't trained about lifestyle modification, about nutritional approaches to disease, about use of natural substances, including herbal remedies. They aren't taught about the strengths and weaknesses of other systems of medicine like Chinese medicine. So that's all they know to do. And on the other hand, this is what patients expect. You know, patients want to be medicated. And some of that is the result of pharmaceutical company advertising, some of it is a, just a deep cultural mindset. So it's a very, it's a deep-rooted problem in our society. And my worry is that uh, a lot of the medications that are most widely used today are n- not only not necessary, but actually may be doing more harm than good, may actually be prolonging or intensifying the conditions for which they're given. So I want to plant some seeds in the brains of the listener before we dive deep into all of those topics you just mentioned, which we will definitely do. But I want to set the stage with some facts. 50% of Americans are taking something. Hundreds of thousands of deaths a year from adverse drug 
reactions. Close to $300 billion spent a year on prescriptive drugs in the U.S. in 2009, almost $11 billion on antibiotic therapy. Resistant infections now account for $20 billion in annual health care costs. Livestock consumed 32 million pounds of antibiotics in 2012. 26% of adults in the U.S. are now taking a statin, costing health care system $20 billion annually. 40 million Americans have a chronic sleep disorder, and 62% of adults experience a sleep problem a few nights per week. Adverse reactions to drugs are the fourth leading cause of death in the U.S. In 2010, antidepressants were, antidepressants were the second most commonly prescribed medication. Okay, but don't get depressed, listeners, and don't turn off the radio, <laughs> because there's hope. Um, but it's good to know, as, as kind of you might need to sit down and think about it, but it's good to know what, what we're dealing with. So I'd like to start with you maybe drawing a picture of prescription drug use and over-the-counter drug use in America today. It, it has skyrocketed. It's the, the amount of medication taken is astounding. And I think many people really do not understand what these uh, substances are, what their real benefits are, what their risks are, and especially whether there are other ways of managing the conditions for which they're taking them that may be safer and better. And maybe you could also briefly lead us through the cycle of a, a typical drug development, marketing, and prescription use. Well, you know, there aren't really a lot of new drugs in the pipeline. Drug companies uh, mostly uh, play with molecules of other companies and see if they can vary them enough to get a patent on them and then try to market them. Um, so a lot of the stuff that you see advertised on television is really nothing new. They're just variations of, of old ideas. And then these have to be put through, you know, a, a great deal of testing. This is regulated by the FDA. But... All the regulations that we have and all the testing we do have not kept a great many worthless and dangerous drugs off the market. So let's talk about worthless and dangerous. And there may be some worthwhile and dangerous as well. I think sure. maybe a big group right. of those. And both legal yeah. and illegal, right? Mm-hmm. Yes. So but in this book, I'm mostly concerned about the, uh, the legal ones. The legal ones. And do you think... I, I think that is such an important shift right now after reading your book because I think so much energy, effort, and resources have been spent on illegal drugs. And it seems like we, much ha ha we may have a much bigger problem with our legal drugs. For sure. And, you know, one that's right on the interface there are the opioids. And uh, we're hearing more and more about the opioid epidemic in this country. I think there is, first of all, the companies that make these drugs make vastly more than are medically needed, and everybody knows they're diverted to the black market. Uh, I think there's a general consensus today that opioids are not good standalone treatments for the management of chronic pain, that they have to be part of a of integrative treatment that includes many other approaches. Um, so I think we're seeing a change, a change there to the good. So as we pull apart the problem, let's start with maybe the excessive reliance on medications and maybe as far as we've just touched on it briefly, the American mindset. As far as well, wanting. the American mindset is that you take a pill. Uh, look at sleep aids. You know, we have th these are tremendously overused products, both prescribed and over the counter. There is an epidemic of insomnia in this country. Uh, not being able to sleep 
has complex causes and you really need to look at what what's responsible there and it's everything from the comfort of a mattress to whether you have aches and pains to not being able to turn your mind off to using too many stimulants during the day too much light in the bedroom i mean all that stuff has to be looked at it's not something you just solve by taking a pill and all of these drugs both the prescription and over the counter uh, do not reproduce natural sleep. They give a kind of counterfeit sleep. For example, they all suppress dreaming, and dreaming is absolutely essential to good mental and physical health. So I think while these uh, products you know, may, may be legitimately used for very short-term management of sleep problems, such as associated with travel or a death in the family, it is not a good idea to rely on these regularly. And so will using a sleeping pill, will that take you even through the different levels of um, brainwave adjustment? Do you even get down to the deepest? No, that's called sleep architecture. And that's what I mean when I say they don't reproduce natural sleep. Um, But in addition, they interfere with mental function. Uh, Many of them cause dependence and sometimes very severe dependence. Um, So I think there are things to be very cautious of. And uh, the fact that so many of them are sold over the counter uh, encourages people to think that they're harmless. By the way, one of the most popular kinds of over-the-counter sleep aids uh, is an antihistamine, Benadryl. And long-term use of that has now been found to increase risk of dementia. And so why do we care if we don't go through the different levels of sleep? If I take a pill and I go to sleep and I <laughs> slept eight hours, why do I care? <laughs> well, if your mind doesn't work right uh, you know, over time, that's not good. If your energy level is not good... Also not good. Now, there are some natural sleep aids uh, that are worth trying if you, if you need to take something. One is the herb valerian, which has been used for centuries, very perfectly safe, doesn't cause dependence, works for most people. And the other is melatonin, a natural substance made in the body, also works well for most people. So in your book, uh, when you pinpoint a number of problems in our relationship to medication today, you talk about antibiotic resistance, over-medication and its consequences, the natural healing powers in, in danger, big pharma, better alternatives already exist. Um, we reduce symptoms rather than cure. Uh, we talked already about the American mindset to just get a pill and be done with it. And drug toxicity. So since there was so much and you go into such wonderful depth, I thought maybe what we would do is just pick a few of the topics and then we can talk about those elements in relationship to it. And I wanted to start with antibiotics because I thought it was such a good example of what can go wrong with what might have originally been uh, a fantastic drug. Yeah, these are very powerful tools. We have squandered their power by using them inappropriately. Um, we've just wasted them, and now we're going to lose them. Uh, Every time an antibiotic is given for a viral infection or for a trivial uh, infection, uh, it becomes weaker, and we drive the evolution of bacteria in very bad directions. We've created these superbugs that are resistant, and there's speculation now uh, that we may not have antibiotics in the very near future, and we'll have to go back to other methods to control bacterial infections that we used before the antibiotic era. So it's a real shame we've done it to ourselves. You talked about, and I think this was an incredible statistic, the C. diff infections that people get from taking an antibiotic and then the damage done to the mitochondrial and the the microbiome. 
Yeah, I mean, this is a this is an example of one of these uh, problems that we've created. This very severe intestinal infection, which can be fatal and can be resistant to our best antibiotics. People tend to acquire it in the hospitals, you know, after being on prolonged antibiotic treatment. Um, you know, the bottom line here is you, you never should ask for an antibiotic if you have a cold that doesn't go away when you think it should. Uh, no doctor should ever give an antibiotic to a patient with a respiratory infection unless there is a documented bacterial infection there. And yet I think especially the current generation, that's what they are used to doing pretty much their entire lives. Oh, I've got something, I'll go and get an antibiotic. And there might be some understanding of the difference between a viral infection and not, and knowing, well, maybe the antibiotic won't help my cold, but anything else, you know, write well, it up. That's why I wrote this book. That's why I wrote this book is to tell, warn people about these things and uh, make them be informed users of medications. And do you think it's too scary? You know, that someone might start reading your book and think, "Oh, I don't want to. I don't want to get those things, and I don't want to know about that." And you know, that that's the doctor's responsibility. I, I don't. Ha- I'm not a doctor. I didn't go to medical school. Well, I would say if a doctor tells you to take a medication, uh, you should ask why. Why do I need that? And if you can't get a clear explanation that makes sense to you, then I think you should do your homework. You know, read up on that drug, uh, get other opinions, and especially find out if there are other methods available for managing the condition that you have. Obviously, there are indications for medication, and, you know, uh, what, what really ideally what you want to do is seek out a physician who's trained in integrative medicine, the kind of medicine that I teach, you know, who knows both worlds and knows, you know, when drugs are appropriate and when they might not be. So it, let's move on to one of the other topics in the book, cholesterol. We've got 26% of adults taking statins for high cholesterol. Is cholesterol the enemy that we had been taught that it was 15 years ago? It, it, is, a, it is a factor, but it's not the only factor, and it may be less important than we've thought. Half of people who have first heart attacks have normal serum cholesterol. So that right there tells you that it's not the only thing to be concerned about. And I worry that when doctors put patients on a statin, uh, they think they've discharged their responsibility there. There's now no reason to talk to the patient about diet, about exercise, about managing stress, uh, all the other factors that influence uh, the health of the heart and arteries. I thought that was a really good example of the available natural solutions with integrative medicine approach. So maybe if we could just a little bit uh, deeper into, let's say you find out you have high cholesterol and your doctor suggests putting you on a statin, what would be the alternative? What would that choice look like? Uh, well, first of all, you want to determine if, if you really need it. And there are, you know, I give some suggestions in the book for, you know, who really should get a statin who shouldn't. There is a, a very good uh, natural alternative, a product called Red Yeast Rice, uh, which actually contains um, uh, natural statin-like drugs, uh, but there's a mixture of them, and Red Yeast Rice causes far fewer side effects than prescription statins. It works well for most people, so that's an alternative to be aware of. You had said that you were most worried about GERD. Why is that one, one of the ones you're most worried about? Well, uh, this is gastroesophageal reflux. Uh, The drugs that we sell for this, um, the proton pump inhibitors, 
uh, the H2 antagonist, these are things like Nexium, both over-the-counter and prescription. I think these are some of the worst drugs out there, and I would urge people not to start on them in the first place, because if you get on them, it's very, very difficult to get off, that you can't reduce the dose or stop it without having symptoms get much worse. The problem is not uh, too much acid being produced. It's that the tissues of the stomach are not uh, norm resistant as they should be to the effects of acid. And, you know, I cannot tell you how many patients I've seen who've been started on one of these drugs without any questions being asked about their diet, their habits, you know, whether they drink alcohol, coffee, what they eat, combinations of food, their stress levels. Uh, you know, I think these are not good drugs, and and uh, there are all sorts of problems uh, with associated with long-term use. And it's important to ask all those questions. By the questions. way, when, when I was growing up, when I was growing up, people didn't have reflux. They had heartburn, and they treated it by taking Tums, which is a very safe preparation of calcium carbonate. And I think most people understood that heartburn was your stomach's way of telling you that you had mistreated it. You know, either you ate too much or the wrong foods. Uh, now we've medicalized this problem, and we see it as overproduction of acid being the, what's responsible, and we use these powerful drugs on it. Not a good idea. It's funny when you mention that, because I think about the commercials that we used to see, and you'd be like, the person would be like, oh, and they ate this spicy enchilada, and their stomach was really, you know, bloated, and they took the Tums, and then it evolved to where, oh, well, you know what? I'm going to order the spicy enchilada. I think I'll take the Tums right now. You know, it was a shift in even <laughs> exactly, our, right. our use of, of medication and drugs was that now it became something like, oh, well, I can still eat the spicy enchilada. I can order three, and I just need to take the Tums. Right. Not a good idea. And why is it not a good drug? Uh, maybe you could talk a little bit well, about how the body works as far as why we produce acid and why we need to produce acid to some level. Acid is necessary to digest food and absorb nutrients. If you shut off acid production in the stomach, you interfere with absorption of nutrients. Stomach acid is also your main defense against infection coming in by the oral route. So if you knock that out, you become much more susceptible to uh, infectious illness. Uh, Long-term use of these drugs is associated with a, a number of problems, including recently also an increased risk of dementia. This is Ellie Newman on That Got Me Thinking. I'm speaking to Dr. Andrew Wild about his new book, Mind Over Meds. And if you'd like to find out more about integrative medicine, about what it is and its benefits, you can get Dr. Wild's new book, Mind Over Meds, Know When Drugs Are Necessary, When Alternatives Are Better, and When to Let Your Body Heal on Its Own. You can also check out his website at www.drwild.com. Thank you so much for joining us today, Dr. Wild. It's an absolute pleasure to have you on the show.